So just in way of a little bit of recap, if you are a bit fuzzy or if you need some uh, help remembering where we have been, Sabbath, we're breaking up into four movements. And the Sabbath is a 24-hour period of time set aside for four things, to stop, to rest, to delight, and to worship. And in each one of these, there's a kind of prevailing question we're asking ourselves. And really the first two are about more what we don't do, right? It's, it's, um, it's practices of, of abstinence, if you will, of pulling back, of actually limitation. But the next two that we're diving into today and next week are actually things that we move forward in together. So it's not just about removing stuff, but it's about what are we actually adding into those spaces. So where we've been so far, part one was stop, just to set aside the reality that Sabbath is to first and foremost cease and pause from our regular rhythms of work and activity. And so the prevailing question we're asking ourselves is what I'm doing on the Sabbath different than a normal day? Is this ceasing what I do Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday or Sunday through the, or whatever your work rhythms are, is this day somehow different? Because we all know how easy it is for all these days to just blend together uh, and for it to, you to wake up and feel like, I don't even know what day it is right now. And there's something different. Are we stopping? Part two, Sherry led us through so beautifully, is rest. And the prevailing question around rest is simply, is this restful? Does this actually bring rest to your mind, your body, your soul? We learn to prepare well for the Sabbath, developing self-chosen boundaries around the day and recognizing the internal and external forces that are conspiring against you to rest. That was last week. And as we think about where we've been in Sabbath so far, and you're starting to develop a picture or an idea or a framework for what Sabbath actually is, maybe you or previous generations, maybe your parents, if they have been involved in church to some degree, the idea of Sabbath was this kind of like, serious, somber day. It's the Lord's day. We don't do anything that isn't about reading your Bible or praying or going to church or whatever. All great things. And to many today, I think we have some of the opposite issue where many think of Sabbath as a day to relax and chill and skip church, sleep in, get pancakes, morning coffee, or whatever. And while there's some truth in either one of those tendencies, both viewpoints, this extreme, somber, we only do serious Jesus business, and the I can do anything I want, so I'm going to like blow off my day, have no commitments, be flaky or whatever, like both viewpoints miss an essential truth about Sabbath, that the Sabbath is designed by God as a day to give yourself fully to delighting in God himself. In his world, your life in it, and ultimately in the very person and work of God himself. And this is where we find this idea of delight. That there is a deep sense of joy that is connected to the idea of Sabbath. And so in week three, what we are pressing into is the celebration part, the feasting part, the joyous part. We learn to give a full day to joy each and every week. And so the prevailing question we are asking, this is an important one, does this activity, does this day bring me deep visceral joy, not in yourself, but in God? 
Does this day, does this activity bring me deep, visceral joy in God? Sabbath is not an onerous day for simple religious duty, but a life-giving day of delight. If you will, a weekly party. It's a full day set aside to celebrate our life with God and his good world. And it's designed to be done in community with others. Few things, one writer says, are more provocative in the modern world than communities of joy. Now, can I be honest for just a moment? If I were to, if you're to look at the four-part framework we have for Sabbath, this is the one that's hardest for me. I don't know about you. I'm a bit of an uh, A-type, high-strung, Enneagram One kind of personality. I do really well with duty. I don't do really well with just like boundless joy. I'm not a fun person, I think. I'm not like a fun person. Like I have to work really hard to have fun, which sounds crazy to some of you in the room. A few of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But just the idea of like waking up and be like, we can do anything we want. What should we do? I'm like, oh, well, let's clean the house. Like the house is dirty and I can't rest if the, the house is dirty. Or we have all these other tasks that we need to get done. Or isn't all this fun just a waste of time? I don't do fun really well. I can gravitate to the duty of stopping. I can gravitate to the resistance piece of resting. I like being subversive and countercultural. So if rest is subversive and countercultural in the world around us, I can get on board with that. But it's almost like I'm not just really resting. I'm resting to like stick it to the man, like stick it to this 24-7 hustle work culture. And I can also get on board with what we're going to learn next week of the redirection of worship. But cultivating joy, delight, fun, admittedly, this is outside my wheelhouse. And this is a piece of my apprenticeship to Jesus, which is lacking and in need of growth. For some in the room, it may be way easier for you. Enneagram sevens? Hello? It may be way easier for you to have a good time than it is for me. Regardless of where you're at, this is an equal part of the Sabbath conversation that we have to bring into the mix as we're understanding a biblical view of Sabbath. So Genesis chapter one, I want to simply give you a short recap of how we came to be and maybe why delight is so hard for us. Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, Everything was good and beautiful and ordered and right. And in verse 31, we have a bit of a summation of the story thus far. And God saw everything he made. What's the Greek word for everything? What does that word actually mean? Everything. Yeah, it's not a trick question. Everything was good. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus far into the creation story, God sees his created world, and what does he say? It's good. It's not only good, it's very good. Things start off really well. But there was one thing that wasn't quite right in Genesis chapter 2. Skip down to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is what? Not good. Not good that man should be alone. Not good that man should be alone. The only thing in all of creation so far is that there's one dude running the show. Naming animals, cultivating plants, having his way. That's not good. So God says, ah, we need something else here. 
I will make a helper fit for him. And then things got good again. The man said at this news, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That sounds pretty good to me. Things were good. This is good. So far, the only thing that's slightly off here is that there was not a helper fit. So God says, I'm going to make you an equal and different counterpart. And things were very good, as they should be. Then we flip the page, or at least I flip a page. I don't know about you. Read the next line. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent. All right, where did the serpent come from? Why is there a serpent in the garden? Why was he more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made? Now, if you're reading the story of God, you should have a whole bunch of alarm bells going off right now. Because so far, everything seems good. And we do not know how long the time period is between chapter 2, verse 25, and chapter 3, verse 1. Some amount of time goes by, and there's another character on the scene. And we know he's up to trouble when you think of a serpent, you don't think like, oh, he seems like he's going to be a good guy. <laughs> when, you, when you think he's more crafty than the rest, you're like, oh, he seems like he's probably up to just good, right? That's it. I'm sure he's here to add to God's good creation. But as we know, the story, things went terribly wrong. And there's about two-thirds of your Bible describing how terribly wrong it has gone. And if we skip all the way to John, one of the biographies of Jesus, Jesus himself promised something to us. In this world, you will have trouble. The distortion and disruption of God's good, ordered, and beautiful creation. Everything was beautiful and right. And now we have to contend with brokenness, ugliness, systematic injustice, war, mass violence, crushing poverty, fill in the blank. You will have trouble. It's a promise of Jesus. You can take it to the bank. In this world, you have trouble. Some translations... Swap out trouble for tribulation, which sounds even more serious. You see, trouble, and with it, sorrow is inevitable. But, thankfully, sorrow is not the whole story of the human existence. And just because this crafty serpent in chapter 3, verse 1 enters the story does not mean he gets the final word. There is still goodness in this world. Again, Jesus in John 15, verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that, you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Other translation says that your joy may overflow. It's that feeling of joy that you just can't contain it. You have to tell somebody about it. It like spills out in you in a good story, in a shout and a dance, a round of applause, something in you wells up. And it can be for silly, trite things, like when the Giants beat the Dodgers. And you're just like, there's nothing on this good green earth that is better. It could be at the birth of a child where you just don't even like, you just look and you have no words. I remember that moment when the doctor handed me Calvin almost eight years ago. There's just nothing to say. You're overwhelmed. I'm not a crier, but I cry. And you just kind of hold this thing that I'm now responsible for, and like, there's something in me that was not there before. 
Maybe it's on your wedding day when you just look across the eyes of your sweetheart and you're like, this is it. Come on. Something about watching your bride walk down the aisle. These moments of joy well up into it. Sometimes we don't even have words for. And based on the amount of babies in the room today, you guys know this joy. You guys know the joy of seeing your bride on your wedding day, of welcoming in baby number one to, I don't know, some of you, five, six. And there's something about that moment. That's the picture of this fullness of joy Jesus is talking about. Maybe something leaks out of us like a cry or a shout or a dance, and maybe we just kind of sit there in awe. This is the level of joy that is Jesus' will for your life. You know that? What's the will of God for your life? Well, one of them is that you would be overflowing with joy. So here's the rub. In life, sorrow, pain, brokenness is inevitable. Joy, while it is Jesus' will for you, is not inevitable. Sorrow will come and visit our life with or without permission. The lost family member or a lost job, frustrations in your marriage, or feeling like you never get your head above water financially. But joy must be not only invited, but chose. And this joy, we have to keep on choosing it over and over and over again. What I want to take you through before we talk about joy and the Sabbath coming together, I want to give a brief theology of joy from the Bible. Because if you were to dive deep into the word of God and do like a word study on joy, you would find a couple of dimensions to it. And if we're being honest, some of these dimensions are harder or easier for us. Some of these dimensions are maybe more accepted in our culture or more counter-cultural. So I want to take you through just a few movements of joy that we see in the Bible. And then we'll start to put together a picture for how joy and Sabbath work together hand in hand. First and foremost, joy is a feeling. Now, happiness and joy are not the same thing. Happiness is based on your external circumstances. When something goes really well, that doesn't mean that it's bad, though. Happiness is a component of joy. It's this feeling of life as it should be when your external circumstances actually reflect your inner desires. And we see some glimpses of this in the Psalms. In Psalm 16, the psalmist describes the care of the Lord and says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There's something about the external world around me that is going well. Psalm 103 describes this God who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Eugene Peterson summarizes this. He says he wraps you in goodness, beauty eternal. Simply, this is the happiness side of joy, and this matters. There is some sense when the world around us is going well, and you can just smile and sit in that and go, yes. Thank you, Lord. But often, and especially in the world around us, and occasionally this idea creeps into the church, that we stop there, that joy is a feeling. So if things are going well, I am joyful. If things are not going well, I am not joyful. And we become then a slave to our circumstances and emotions. But biblically, 
This is only one component of joy. The second is a condition. It's not just some come and go feeling, but it's describing the kind of person you become as you follow Jesus. For instance, in Galatians chapter 5, we have a snapshot of a life won over by God and that is being changed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, these are not fruits plural like a checkbox, but this is the outcome of a life submitted to Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And what's number two? Joy. And go on and on. There's a few more things after that but is actually talking to identity, a condition, like a viewpoint, a mindset, and your character and your nature. In old school language, joy is a virtue. Just like wisdom or courage or fortitude. And it must be developed as such. Which is why joy, thirdly, is also a discipline. In Scripture, joy is both a noun and a verb. It gets used both ways. And so the, uh, uh, the verb of joy often gets translated to rejoice. But more literally, it could mean to joy. So, for instance, in the prophet Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice, or we could swap in, I will choose to joy in the Lord always. I will take joy in the God of my salvation Or in the New Testament, Philippians, as Paul is writing about joy to the church in Philippi, rejoice or choose to joy in the Lord always. Again, I say choose to joy. There are times when joy is easy, when you get good news on your wedding day or when it's raining just enough to slow you down and brew some coffee out of your Chemex and open a good book and just stare out a window into oblivion like there's nothing happier like that is the what if that's my ideal Saturday Sabbath like that's it right there a little drizzly rain fresh pot of Chemex like a thick book I know I'm not going to finish that day oh so good and all my kids are doing the same thing sipping their coffee reading their books staring out the window so good there are times when joy comes easy And there are times when choosing joy is a sheer act of obedience to Jesus. His book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster says this, quote, the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. This is why celebration is a discipline. It's not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. John Mark Comer, his book, where he speaks on Sabbath, says joy is a discipline to index your heart towards the good. At the heart of these three, feeling, condition, discipline, is where we find biblical joy. Right in the center of all those things working together, compensating for each other based on our life and stage of life. But all three are important. Sabbath is a discipline of celebration, a delivery mechanism for joy, we will discover. It is one of the most important disciplines by which the people of God become people who are full of joy, like our God. Or more succinctly, Tim Keller said this, quote, because the world is full of ugly things, we need the Sabbath to feed our soul with beauty. 
So this is where we introduce Sabbath into the equation with joy. And I would posit that Sabbath joy is another, like rest, form of resistance to the culture around us. Sabbath is a day that moves us from production to presence, and it's in his presence that we find the fullness of joy. Back to the story of Genesis. What we see here in Genesis chapter 1, 31, and God saw everything that he made. And behold, it was very good, and there was evening and morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, which is, what does holy mean? Calvin was holy mean? Set apart for God. So we're not talking about moral purity here. This is a set apart. This is a distinction. He distinctified the seventh day as something set apart for him. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. What's not happening here? Is God resting because he's worn out, burnt out, tired? No. Why do we think he's resting? If he doesn't need rest, why is God resting? He's setting an example for us. He's spinning into the creation rhythm some enjoyment of his creative work as a model for us to follow. When the Romans encountered the Jews and noticed their strict adherence to the law of abstaining from labor on the Sabbath, their only reaction, says one scholar, was contempt. Contempt at these people who would dare cease to work one day out of the week. How crazy is that? That a day that was meant for joy, rest, delight was so at odds with the Roman culture that they not only saw it as offensive, contemptible, but they saw it as a threat. Because the Sabbath is a threat to all empires. Empire will never understand rest. And especially in the time and place that we live in, in a 24-7 endless culture of productivity, workaholism, distraction, burnout, and anxiety, a way of life we have all sadly grown accustomed to, in a society addicted to the twin drugs of accomplishment and accumulation, the Sabbath is an act of resistance against that. It is a way of simply saying, enough. Enough with the productivity, enough with the consuming. Thank you, Ben. Rich Velotis, author of Deeply Formed Life, says, We keep Sabbath not because it makes us more productive at work, I always think of that, um, I don't know if you guys watched The Office, but I think of that moment when uh, Michael gets caught, like, as he's just, like, with the whole office watching Varsity Blues, like, and his boss comes in and busts him, and he's like, oh, it's, it's for producti productivity, they're all going to work harder. He's like, why do they have to work harder? Well, to make up for all the time that we lost watching the movie. And often I think we think maybe Sabbath is like, if we just have this deadline at the end of the week, it'll cause us to be more productive and to go, go, go. But he goes on to say, we keep Sabbath to resist the idol of productivity. We are more than what we produce. Comer, again, Sabbath is a way to break the addictive pattern of accomplishing more, accumulating more, repeat. It's an act of defiance and rebellion against the endless, restless grind of workaholism and consumerism. There's more to life than production. There's pleasure. Sabbath is a way to break 
our addiction to accomplishment. So in Sabbath, we not only stop and rest, but we delight. That's why I think what we try to do in our home and what the end goal for you, especially with kids, Sabbath is the best day of the week. It's the most fun day of the week. That's why we try really hard to eat well. And during the good times of the year, watch baseball. Go to the beach. Go to a park. We read books. We play board games. What is fun? Stopping and resting requires not just a somber attitude, but a rebellious joy in the absence of demands. Our kids look forward to Sabbath every week. It's the best day of the week. Not just because I'm not working, but because it's fun. We do fun things. We're intentional about having fun together. It's where we adventure, discover, explore, make each other laugh, and get to say yes a lot. Which as a parent who says no a lot six days a week, it is pretty fun to have a day where we say yes a lot. Now, how do we do that? How do we actually cultivate this kind of joy? And I'll say for some of you in the room, you may not need my next couple of minutes on how to. I need the next couple of minutes of how to. So even if you're just along with me for my journey, we know that joy does against, goes against the flow of the world. Not only our host culture, but even some of our neurobiological wiring. Like we need some intentionality to cultivate the discipline of joy. So three moments. Three areas we can, I'm sure there are many more, but three as a, even a starter, how to joy. Number one is to simply slow down. Hurry and joy are incompatible. The Psalms remind us to be still and know that I am God. Delight demands that we slow down and savor the goodness of a moment, not rushing past this moment to get to the next. Simply just to slow down. And maybe that is the call for some of you in the room. You are running at an unsustainable pace in life. How to joy? Slow down. Slow your pace of life down. Number two. Put boundaries around the day. To enter Sabbath delight will require us to say no to some things in order to say yes to joy. We can start with really easy things like saying no to washing dishes because that does not bring you joy. And so we're going to punt that a day and come back around to those dishes. It could be, and I, I wanna, I'm going to enter into some really dicey territory. It may be saying no to certain people. It may be saying no to things that you should have done on a Friday, but you forgot, and now it's going to be very late on a Sunday or a Monday, and you still need to say no. Author Marvadon says, we don't know how to feast because we don't know how to fast. Let's go hand in hand together. To say yes to something means we are saying no to others. And part of Sabbath is learning how to slow down our overall life, to live with moderation during the week, in order to turn Sabbath into a celebration. It may require not just saying no to things on Sabbath, but saying no to things during the week because that is reserved for Sabbath. This will require some healthy boundaries, both during the week and on the Sabbath itself. So a very practical like tip, best practice situation, is these are not you know, legally binding, and I'm not giving these to you, but for yourself, for your family, 
create an I will and I won't list for the Sabbath. Now, you can't, if, you have, if you're married, you can't do this by yourself because you can't say, I'm not going to do all these things and then suddenly everything's like shoveled onto your wife's plate or your husband's plate. You got to work together on this list. If you have kids, work together with them. They will be potent, potent prophetic voices for how you are not present with them if you allow them to be. They will be very real, unfiltered voices for how you avoid spending time with them if you let them. Bring them in. Create an I will and an I won't list on the family for your family. Create it together and run every potential activity through the grid, our grid of stop, rest, delight, worship. So I will fill in the blank. I will not set an alarm on Sabbath. Well, unless you Sabbath on Sunday. You probably need an alarm to help you get out of the, out of the house. Because what is not a viable option is I will skip church on Sabbath. That's not Sabbath. That's just a day off. I will, I won't. What will we do? I will eat really well. I won't cook. We will order out. We will pre-make something the day before. What is that for you? I will play at least one board game. I will go outside at least once. I won't look at my email. What are those I will, I won't for you? Make those, craft those together as a family and run every potential activity through, is this stopping? Is it restful? Is it delightful? Is it worship? If it's no to those things, it belongs on a different day. So slow down, put some boundaries around the day. And finally, give yourself to joy. For those of you especially who are new to Sabbath, a great question to ask yourself and give shape to your practices. What could I do for a 24-hour period of time that would bring me deep, visceral joy in God? What could I do? Dan Allender says this, quote, The Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. It is the day we anticipate on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, if your Sabbath is Saturday. Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it to make it holy because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. That may have hit hard with some of you. Others of the room are looking at people like me and going, you are crazy. Why is it so hard for you to have joy and to have fun? Others of you, it may seem daunting to give over a whole day to joy in God. Now, to speak about joy and delight on Sabbath without addressing the brokenness of the world that we opened up with in Genesis chapter 3, the brokenness in our life, it might feel tone deaf for me speaking to you, and it might feel unattainable to you listening to me. And the reality is sometimes the Sabbath comes in a season of life that is full of sadness. And one author coined this Sabbath sadness, where if we are actually slowing down enough 
to be present with our family, to be present with God, we're also slowing down enough to maybe let some emotions we've pushed down all week creep back up. Some stories that we've tried to forget come back to remembrance. Other times, because of overwork, overactivity during the previous six days, on the Sabbath, we crash, our nervous system goes through withdrawals, and our body is just in a slump. And often on Sabbath, we have space in the quiet, which is a good thing, to breathe. But in that space, whatever feelings we've been repressing and running away from all week long start to catch up to us. The key in this is not to fight that Sabbath sadness or let it discourage you as if Sabbath isn't working, why even bother? But rather, this is a biblical image, to let it pass over you like a wave. The Psalms, in Psalm 42, says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mezer. Deep calls to deep at the war of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over. It's the image of not resisting it, not avoiding it, but not giving yourself over to it, but simply being present in it. Jesus' desire for you is not to bypass pain or to get stuck in it, but to go through it. Sherry and I have been doing coaching and spiritual direction and therapy over the last year. That is one of the primary lessons we've had to learn is there are certain ways to deal with pain and suffering. And one is to play the victim card where we just like are so victimized by all the bad stuff around us we can hardly function. Another is to play the martyr card and say, woe is me, look at all this bad stuff that's happening to me. We can avoid it, but the only healthy way through pain is to go through it. Not around it, not over it, not under it, but right through it. And in time, come out on the other side, maybe with some lessons learned. This is that death-resurrection pattern laid down by Jesus himself. So delight, joy, biblical joy, is not a denial of pain. This is important. It's not a denial of pain. It's determination to move through pain courageously and honestly and patiently into joy. This is why the Sabbath comes every seven days. To remind us of the goodness of our life with God and all the seasons of our lives, including the ones that don't feel very good. Unlike other spiritual practices, the timing of Sabbath is set by God himself. You can pick when you want to do a silence and solitude retreat. You can choose when you want to open scripture. You can choose when you want to let community into your life. You don't get to choose the Sabbath. The six-on, one-off rhythm was laid out by God himself in creation, not by our own inner spiritual clock that tells us the need of the hour. So whether we need it or want it or not, Sabbath comes once a week. Sabbath comes at the end of a great week and at the end of a lousy one. When we finished all our to-do lists and when we're woefully behind and have to just stop. In the summer, in the winter, when all is well, and when our life is falling apart, every seven days, Sabbath is right there to remind us it's okay that we're not okay. And in those seasons of the dark night of our soul, as one author put it, where our prayers are unanswered and God feels far and maybe it feels like our dreams are over, the Sabbath comes and with it a sense of peace, of trust in God, despite our circumstances, not because of them. 
Sabbath teaches us to delight and even be happy or joyful in all the seasons of life. Whereas Paul said in Philippians 4.4, 4, to choose to joy in the Lord always. In the way of Jesus, joy is a gift, but it's one that must be picked up, chosen, and cultivated day after day as an act of resistance to the world around us and even our inner desires and an act of obedience in our apprenticeship to Jesus. His invitation from Matthew 11 is to come to me. I will give your souls rest. In your house churches this week, you're going to be planning a Sabbath feast, either together or with other friends in a different day of the week. You can do this to begin your Sabbath if you start at night, or you can end it like after church on Sunday or a Sunday evening meal. You can do it with your house church during the week and sort of have like a big feast. But you're going to be learning two ideas. You're going to be learning the idea and putting into practice the idea of feasting, which is more than just gorging on food. That's not what feasting is. Like feasting is not just you order two meals instead of one. That's not a feast. A feast is a long, luxurious meal around the table with people you love and bring life. That's a feast. And you're going to be learning about the idea of pleasure stacking. Making a list of activities that cause you delight and joy and planning to do a whole lot of them. I love going to the beach. I love hiking. I love ice cream. Sabbath has all of those. Let's do it. Pleasure stacking retraining your brain to find joy in that Sabbath rhythm. We're going to work to have fun this week. How's that sound? Cool. All right, two of you are excited about this. For some of you, this may be really difficult. And if it is really difficult for you, I would encourage you to learn from those in your house church for whom this is easy. There may be people in your house church who know how to throw a good party. This is the time to let them in the driver's seat, all right? I want to pray a blessing over you from Isaiah 58, and then Jason is going to lead us in a bit of response. If you would, would you stand with me? And as you're standing, would you put your hands out right in front of you, just as a, a bodily action to kind of do what we want our hearts to do as we receive this prayer from Isaiah 58. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Father, we enter your rest. We enter your six-on, one-off creation rhythm. And today and this week, we want to discipline ourselves to enter your joy. Would you help us take hold of this promise? If we honor it, not going our own way, seeking our own pleasure, or talking idly, would you help us delight in you? 
Help us to take hold of that promise that as we delight in you, you will make us ride on the heights of the earth. You will feed us with the heritage of your people. Would you help us as a community together joy well? May the God of rest fill you with his peace and presence as you rest in him. Let's sing.